MuggleCast is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. GoDaddy hosting plans are now more powerful than ever. Best of all, plans start at just $3.95 a month. And no matter what plan you choose, your site receives 24-7 maintenance and protection in the GoDaddy.com world-class data center. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code MUGGLE, that's M-U-G-G-L-E, when you check out, and save an additional 10% on any order. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. Hello, this is David Heyman, and I'm the producer of the Harry Potter films, and this is MuggleCast. Because I'm ready to put on my Sunday best, this is MuggleCast episode 213 for November 12th, 2010. Welcome everyone to MuggleCast episode 200 and, ooh, an unlucky 13. Ooh. Mike and Eric are here along with me. Hello, boys. Hello, Andrew. Hello. And we are diverting from the normally scheduled programming that we would have here. We're actually going to skip chapter by chapter this week because, you know, the, the movie is, the upcoming film is on everyone's mind. And what better thing to discuss than the adaptation of... Uh, of the book to the film, and we're going to do that this week, based on the wonderful editorial that MuggleNet editorialist Lady Lupin wrote for MuggleNet a few weeks ago. It was posted on the site, got great feedback. I think we briefly mentioned it on the show uh, when it was released. So that's going to be our main discussion this week, and of course we have lots of news. Um, so are you guys ready? Yes. Are you set? I thought you were talking to the fans. Fans, rev up your engines. Mm. I can see people riding the school bus and just screaming out, yes, as you yeah. <laughs> said that. School bus. I would understand that because I used to, when I rode the school bus, I would listen to podcasts. Did those- would you really? Yeah. Not ours, but I would. Well, I shouldn't just say the school bus. People that are driving to work, people that are working around their home uh, or at work. I know people listen to us at work as well. We're a fine substitute for getting things done. If anyone listens in the bathroom, please let us know so we can start saying people listen to us in the bathroom. We want to cover all areas of your world. I'll listen to us in the bathroom just to forego anybody emailing us in and confessing to that. <laughs> Why don't you podcast in the back- bathroom? That'll one-up everyone. I think the bathroom is occupied at the moment. You know, an interesting question, though, would be what, what is the most unique place that somebody has listened to this podcast i feel like we've already done a contest yeah 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 (laughs) well i think we have we should well we we haven't done that 150 episodes or so so (laughs) why not try it again i feel like maybe ben asked that question at one point or because he well he podcasts from his car and then we had like a listener competition send a picture of you listening to us in a really odd location and i forget if we ever even compile the listeners if you do have, if you think your location is <laughs> unique, do email it in. Visit MuggleCast.com and email us. Anyway, let's get the show started. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Mike Tannenbaum.
Mike Atanabaum. Yes. What's in the news? Well, Andrew, before we get to talking about Deathly Hollows, uh, Dan Radcliffe made an appearance on The Simpsons earlier this week, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about it, not spend too much time on it, but it was part of The Simpsons' Treehouse of Horror, their annual Halloween episode. Uh, it aired uh, on Sunday evening at 8 o'clock here on the East Coast, and uh, probably will air throughout the country. I don't know, Simpsons, I would assume, airs overseas as well. If not, you can probably watch it online. It'll end up on YouTube, undoubtedly, as well, so uh, I'm sure we will post the full episode on MuggleNet at one point or another. But, uh, Eric, you and I both got a chance to see it. Uh, What was your overall impression of of the part that uh, Dan Radcliffe appeared in? I thought it was really, really funny. And I was worried, you know, because we found out that he was going to do this It was before last year's Treehouse of Horror took place that we found out he was going to be on The Simpsons. And I remember specifically the Mugglenet post was like, okay, it's going to be on, you know, Treehouse of Horror 21, which is next year. So we waited, I mean, we were waiting like a year for this to hear, you know, from when he had to record it to when it finally aired. And I have to say, I was really pleased. Uh, I thought this episode was funny and that the segment with Dan Radcliffe in it was very funny. Oh, okay. Mikey, you have an opposing opinion. I, I thought it was terrible. I thought the whole show was awful. All of it? But that that's just my own opinion. Now, do you do you normally like The Simpsons? You or? Know, I, I haven't probably sat down and watched The Simpsons in years. Like, I watched them when I was growing up and because it's been on you know, for 20 years now, and it's obviously has its place in American television culture, but I just thought this episode was terrible. Like I, the only time I laughed at was when Homer shot the pelican uh, <laughs> during this, the, the second uh, comedy sketch. Which had so Hugh Laurie it's just my own, on it. My own opinion. I didn't even notice that. So, it, And Dan Radcliffe didn't even sound like he was British um in the early part of the, of the, the segment that he appeared in. So it took a while for his to, to be able to tell that it was him. I'm not sure that anybody who was randomly watching would know that it was him if they didn't see a post like this or, or a commercial in advance saying that, you know, starring Dan Radcliffe. So, uh, but I didn't think it was very funny, but maybe that's because I haven't read Twilight and I guess that's what it was spoofing. Well, I suppose, I, I, I think in particular the first Twilight film um, probably got the brunt of the references and the jokes. Um, it kind of followed the plot of the first film more, uh, although there were elements of the of the, the whole series in this short. You know, it's it, it, there were three stories to this Treehouse of Horror episode, and each of them were about six to nine minutes, I would say, um, you know, without commercials. Well, the other news uh, that was released over the weekend, maybe unintentionally uh, by the official Harry Potter website, is that it seems as if Alexander Desplat will be composing Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which is in complete contrast to information that we reported (laughs) probably a couple months ago that uh, it was going to be John Williams, uh, who is going to return for uh, the final Harry Potter film. So this yeah. is uh, – I, I don't think it's that unexpected, though, since he did work on part one, that he would return for part two. And Right. The, the, the only surprise is that we had heard uh, apparently from WB Brazil that 
John Williams was on board. And a lot of people wanted John Williams to come back for part two because he did the first three films, obviously did an amazing job, wrote the iconic, now iconic, Hadwig's theme. And uh, he's just, you know, everybody knows him for his great scores, whether it's Star Wars, Jurassic Park. I mean, he's done it all. He's done the biggest franchises. So for him to come back and round out the series, put his magic on it, it would have been great. And um, the the crew have been on the record as saying, yes, we would have liked to have him back. Mm -hmm. But it looks like it hasn't worked out. I think this was definitely an unintentional leak. Whoever writes the copy for the site... uh, is getting a no slap longer on the employed road. on Monday. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be looking for some work somewhere else. Yeah, I think a lot of fans are craving the closure that John Wayne, or like the the circularity, I want to say, of everything coming back to the, the start. You know, especially with the films, which ties in with our editorial discussion today. A lot of people are looking for the the films to have a circular, have a, you know, a kind of full, wholesome feel to them. And and, and that would have been achieved yeah. easier with John Williams, you know, same composer as the first film coming back for the eighth. So, but but I think the thing people need to remember though is that John Williams hasn't really been a part of the series since Prisoner of Azkaban, right? Yeah. So that was released in '03, I think, or around that time. So I mean, you're talking seven years he hasn't been involved with this franchise. Um, maybe he's consulted in some respect with with some of the other composers since then, but. Ultimately, you know, he hasn't been around for that long, so you know, it shouldn't be that big of a surprise that that he's not going to be back for the, for yeah. the finale. I mean, he only And by yeah. the way, um I watched the part 4 of the Harry Potter documentary that we were talking about um on the Ultimate Edition. Oh, about the music? Yeah, and John Williams at one point, he's talking and um he reveals something really interesting that before he had even seen a single frame of the films, he wrote Hedwig's theme because they needed it for something. I can't remember what they needed it for, but they needed it. And this is before he had even seen any of the film, not a single frame. And he wrote that. And then they they heard it and they were like, oh, my God, this is perfect. And I just think that's an incredible story because now that is the theme of the entire franchise. And it, and, it, and he, he hadn't even seen any See, of the I, 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 I don't know. I like him even less from knowing that story. <laughs> Why? Because he's so perfect? Yeah. Yeah. Cause, well, no, because also... <laughs> also, it just shows that, um, you know, he wasn't personally moved by Harry Potter. Like, all of us are personally moved by his music, so... Well, come on. he's got He made some other scores that, you know, were inspired by what he saw on screen, so... Eh, maybe, but I don't particularly love the third film, which was really the film that he, as a composer, broke all the boundaries on. So I, I don't feel like I owe him that debt of loyalty. He's only composed three out of the, what will be, eight films. And despite Hedwig's theme and, and the good themes that I fit well to the movies he was a part of, um, I also really like what these new composers have done since. So What else is the news? Okay, okay let, let's Sorry, stick John. with uh, part one here for a second and talk a little bit about all the clips that have been released over the course of the, really the last week or so. And, uh, Eric, I know you're going to chime in. You've, you've seen the film in, in some capacity and obviously you're, you're a bit disappointed that this much, uh, is being leaked out there. But, uh, some of the things that we have seen is uh, a look at the seven potters with, uh, Mad-Eye Moody going around and giving the polyjuice potion to everyone, uh, who's at Privet Drive. We saw a clip of Dobby uh, in Malfoy Manor 
um, with, uh, who is it, uh, Ollivander, Harry, Ron, Luna, and Griphook. We saw recently uh, a shot of Creature as part of a uh, TV spot and him talking about uh, the Deathly Hallows. And uh, there was also some other um, clips that were at least one at the cafe, I think, right? When yes. Uh, yes. they're fighting some of the... Uh, some of the Death Snatchers. Eaters or Snatchers. Uh, and uh, there was another one with Bellatrix fighting at Malfoy Manor as well. So a lot of different clips being thrown out there, TV spots and different things. And it's just, you can tell the movie is close at hand. But you know, I was the thing I was really surprised to see was, was the one at Privet Drive. Because I, I thought that was a scene a lot of people would be looking forward to. And for them to throw it out there before the movie... Um, you know, I know it angered a lot of people. Well, listen, yeah. I mean, you Maybe can be I- as angry as you want, but the fact of the matter is you don't have to watch the clips. And, I agree with that. Yeah, I know. I agree the, with you. But the we clips have are to. Not, the clips are not... No, I'm speaking to listeners. Now. Okay. Uh, listen, listener, who's who's upset about this. <laughs> the, you don't have to watch it. And it's not ruining anything for you. It's not ruining anything for anyone else. Um, actually, I do have comments about that clip. I think what they did was a bit lazy. But I think I'll save that for our movie review episode. The way that everyone transforms into the Seven Potters, I thought it was kind of lazy. I'm a bit disappointed. Oh, is that your comment? That's my comment. So I'm mad, too. It ruined it for me. <laughs> well, how would how would you know if you hadn't already seen it? I mean... I did. That scene is like 90 seconds long in the movie, and there's a, it's a 65 second... second... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's so. it's It's pretty solid ridiculous there's there are no other words for that and even though you don't have to watch these scenes uh i feel like the fact that they're out there and you you need to purposely try to avoid them we got fans and listener comments i posted two of them you don't need to try to avoid them you just don't click on them it's not like somebody shoving them down your throat (laughs) if you have friends who are harry potter fans andrew they are posting this on. on facebook they are linking this on twitter and it's just, it's annoying. You p- You're one of these people that are feeding into this nonsense about, <laughs> oh my god, it's ruining the films. They're just clips. Michael, what else is going on? Come on, get us out of here. Out of this hole. <laughs> All right, the last bit of news is uh, about the Quidditch World Cup, which is going to take place uh, this upcoming weekend, November 13th to the 14th, in New York City. And now, wait a second. How is this possible? I I, I thought we these books were fiction. Oh well, Brooms Andrew. Are real. Uh, it, are real. If you watch MSNBC, you will see uh, the feature that they recently did on the Quidditch World Cup and Quidditch as a whole. They actually had uh, a girl by the name of Annabelle Cryan on, who's a high school Quidditch captain. So I guess what they're doing is they're not just bringing colleges in. I guess high schools as well. Uh, for this Quidditch World Cup uh, coming up this weekend, so it's 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 pretty cool that it's caught on the way that it has. I remember, uh, I think it was Middlebury College initiated uh, th- this yeah, this right. whole idea of of playing Quidditch as a sport, and uh, it's really grown over the course of uh, the last couple of years, and it's taken on a life of its own, kind of like Wizard Rock ha- has, not to the the level. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's interesting to see that all these different colleges and schools out there playing this now, you know, getting featured on, on something like MSNBC. And, uh, I'm sure it'll be a great event, uh, leading up to, uh, the premiere on, on Monday. So, right. So when is this actually, it's taking place the weekend before the premiere? Yeah. So the 13th and the 14th, uh, in New York City 
is where why don't be. we go watch this what why what day is it i i just it, it's the 13th and the 14th november 13th oh. and the 14th <laughs> i just asked you something for, you for the said, third sorry. time uh, in new york city for the fourth time i was time. looking it up i wasn't listening cause <laughs> especially for somebody who now i know micah i, I know you're a football fan i you know i have this you know as a sports watcher i don't I don't. I never found one sport besides, you know, baseball that I that I could like follow, and especially no sport that I would follow religiously in terms of, you know, fanship. I think Quidditch, you know, being a Harry Potter fan, fan of the books, you know, I'd like to see this sport adapted to reality as it has been and gain in notoriety as it has been. I would like to go to this Quidditch World Cup, and I would like to see this in action. All right. Mike, it's decided. Clear your schedule Sunday. I'm flying on Saturday. I'm going to miss it. But uh, Sunday, uh, I will bring a picnic basket and a blanket, and we will sit and watch <laughs> the game together and have a little picnic. On, on the field? I, I got to tell you, they don't actually have brooms. They're going to be running. Not up. on the field. We'll be in the, the spectators. We'll be on the sidelines. <laughs> and uh, everyone listening should go. I got to I, I got to say you should pull your resources. They might somebody who listens to our show might actually have like front row tickets and to, you know to spare. No, I I know the guy who I know the guy who runs this. He emails and asks us to uh plug it. So, I'm going. <laughs> Everyone listening, if you're in New York City, go. We should go. It's going to be fun. And uh of course it is sponsored by our good friends over at Olivons. They are the title oh, yeah. sponsor of the event. So, uh do they supply the brooms? They might. They might. I think they do. All right. Well, Micah, you and I have a date, November fourteenth. Sounds like a good time. I'll wear my Sunday best. <laughs> you do that. All right. What else? What else is going on? Well, I think uh, we can just wrap up talking about the fact that nominations are open for the uh, two thousand and ten podcast awards, and uh, we'd like people to go out there and nominate us in the categories of people's choice and entertainment. Uh, you can, as the rules. Not so clearly state, you can uh, nominate us in the People's Choice and one other category. So we ask that, you know, for that other category, you nominate us in uh, entertainment. And uh, voting will open, I think, two weeks uh, after. So on uh, November the 21st is when the voting should open. Well, that's when nominations close. Oh, that's when nominations so- close. I'm not sure when voting opens. We'll keep you guys posted on when that happens. Yeah. But, uh, you know, obviously we appreciate the, uh, you guys going out and nominating us and then hopefully voting for us if, if we make the cut. So Right. We need your help. We need your help now. So go to yes. podcastawards.com. In the People's Choice box, it's right on the main page. It's very easy. Put in MuggleCast. Under podcast URL, put HTTP semicolon backslash backslash www.mucklecast.com. And do, do the same thing in the entertainment box. Then at the bottom, you put in your name and your email address and you hit submit. It's very easy. Instructions can also be found on mugglecast.com. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, and also, um, you know, our friends over at, uh, Hogwarts Radio are running, are trying to get in the running for, um, po- two podcast awards as well. I believe, uh, Eric, you said in education and there's one other category that runs best produced. So best produced. If you guys uh, can definitely go ahead and, uh, fill out their names and uh, what's the website that they can include? just go to mugglecast.com and right there on the main page you'll find all the instructions it's very easy it'll take you 10 mm-hmm. seconds oh yeah well, Hogwarts radio is a good podcast too i you know they like us and we like them absolutely and i also happen to be on their show <laughs> oh really i didn't know that full disclosure <laughs> 
Okay, so for our main discussion this week, like I said at the top of the show, we are going to focus on an editorial that was posted on MuggleNet a couple weeks ago now by our own Lady Lupin. It, it really got a lot of feedback, and this is the reason why we're talking about it here on the show today. It's really interesting because we have talked on the show so much about the good and bad of, of what the adaptations have done. And this editorial basically broke everything down. She compares film Harry to book Harry. What what film Harry knows, or sorry, what book Harry knows and what film Harry doesn't know, uh, what they could possibly do to to fix those problems in parts one and two. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot. So, and she she's not afraid to lay it on the line as far as her personal feelings too. Like I found myself agreeing with the non you know strict points she was making, such as her feelings on Dumbledore in the films and all of that. So hopefully, Micah will. Do a good job and yeah. touching on all of that. Yeah, no, and I think no pressure, no pressure, Micah. No, no pressure at all. I've, we've done over two hundred episodes, so I think pressure has gone out the window at this point. But no, I, I think this is this is really a great editorial, and uh, um, really you, we can talk to almost every point that exists in it, and I, I put pretty much close to every point in here. But uh, um, you know, and Eric, you did bring up a good point when you said she wasn't afraid to really lay it on the line, and I think she made it clear though that people should differentiate between the books and the movies and she does that i mean she's she she goes in with the anticipation that everything that we like about the books is not going to be able to make it into the films and i and i think mm-hmm. that that's a huge um misconception that a lot of harry potter fans go into seeing a movie with that everything that they loved about you know, let's say Half Blood Prince is going to be in the Half Blood Prince film, and it's just not feasible from a time standpoint. Well, Half Blood Prince is is I would say her primary focus as well as a film in this editorial. Um, I think that's the right choice to make. You know, because it is the most recent, um, you know, film. It is the one that kind of mattered the most as far as obviously setting up the the finale to the series and. You know, there's even a little bit about, I guess, some some excerpts from DH Part One, like the trailers and stuff that have been released in this editorial. So it's very fresh. Um, but she does even say, you know, she liked the sixth film, but then you know she'll continue to, you know, be very very skeptical about all the things that they did cut out. And she goes into you know detail as far as that. So right. I, I think it's really effective, and I can't wait to to start talking about this. So let's let's do it. Okay. Well, Andrew, you mentioned that what, really the whole point of this editorial is analyzing what book Harry knows prior to Deathly Hallows versus what movie Harry knows prior to the final two films. And uh, you know she she starts out with the great point that really for the first 5 films the screenwriters were flying blind. You know they they weren't really sure how the series would end and they had to make a lot of their choices without being certain what would prove important later on in the series. Now certainly they had JK Rowling as a resource but mm. once you get to Half-Blood Prince, we all know what the ending is going to be. And, uh, you know, to her point, she says that the filmmakers can't hope to have the same impact that scenes like the lightning struck tower would have when you were reading it for the first time. So, See, I, I don't know that I feel about this. I don't know if, that I feel that those two points are mutually exclusive, and I don't know that I particularly agree that they can't match on screen what we feel in the books. Mm-hmm. Why is that, though? Do you... No, I, I agree well, with you. I'm not sure that that 
those two points that she throws out there necessarily connect with each other. I, I think she, mm-hmm. she makes a great point that the first five films, there wasn't as much knowledge. But now with Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows had already been out. So you knew how the series was going to come to an end. I think her point should have been yeah. that they should have done more with Half-Blood Prince yes. knowing yeah. what was going to be the outcome of the series. Yeah. And I completely agree. And on that topic, uh, you know, things like Creature, when they went to cut him, J.K.R. said no, but less significant, you know, changes, w- of which there are probably a hundred in each film, you know, more in the, in the later films after two, I would say, than, than, than others. But the very small details that, that everybody just took liberties with, and obviously they weren't that, but like the Frog Choir, um, you know, that, that J.K.R. allowed in, uh, do eventually, through the course of eight films, work to create, or I should say six films, work to create the situation that we have now, which, you know, as she points out, as Lady Lupin points out, is a completely different, you know, movie Harry, a completely different Harry than the one in the book, in terms of what he knows, in terms of what his world is like, and in terms of how he reacts to that world. They're well, completely different. And let, let's talk about so this some are, of this, Yeah. Let's talk about... Well, let's run through a couple of these points, and then feel free to stop me uh, if you want to mention okay. anything related to them. Uh, point number one she brings up. Book Harry knows that Dumbledore believes that the remaining Horcruxes are Hufflepuff's Cup, Nagini, something of Ravenclaw's, or Gryffindor's, and the part of Voldemort's soul that resides in his new body. Film Harry knows none of this. So, this one could be a problem, looking at part one, because Harry, presumably, he's going to have to find out that uh, about this information from Dumbledore somewhere in part one, since he didn't learn it in Half-Blood Prince. Yeah. Uh, Eric, does, and as someone who has seen the film... Does he acquire this information in a in a way that's uh, acceptable? That feels okay. Yeah. Well, since you asked, spoiler I'm alert. Say that Let's the, just say spoiler no. alert. <laughs> okay, I think that's fair, but I think that we already have listeners who comment and say we're not listening to MuggleCast until November nineteenth. So, yeah, spoiler alert. But I'm going to say that the seventh film employs something I've never seen them do before, uh, as far as you know, filmmaking. I think this is their response to some of this, their preparation for some of this, they struggle. It's echoed in the mirror. The Sirius's mirror, in the seventh film, Harry has it. And it's odd because it was something that was almost even deliberately completely ignored by filmmakers in movie five when, you know, Sirius is supposed to give Harry this mirror and it's supposed to be sentimental, da-da-da-da-da. So what I'm saying is they employed this uh, technique to suggest that things have happened in the mo- in the world of the movie that weren't shown in the movies. So it actually for the first time it feels like a uh, what? a real Yeah, so it, it, so for the does first he, time does it feels he, Does he get the Horcrux yeah. information through the mirror? No. Oh. But having the mirror and knowing it, it, already having the mirror already shows that uh, you know, in the world of the film, Harry has had some of the training we haven't seen him get. Does that make sense? So, say, for instance, that Harry received a lesson from Dumbledore during the course of his sixth year that wasn't shown on screen in movie six. It's plausible based on, wh- you know, how uh, how he acts in the seventh film. And I'm not saying that the Horcrux knowledge is not going to be shown on on screen at all, because I think it absolutely will be 
uh, but in part two. Okay. So, so the short answer to that was no. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my question, Eric. Are you saying that the Sirius's mirror is an example of one of those things where the yes that the the producer or the director is trying to make it clear to the person going to the film that there have been things taking place that that viewer hasn't been privy to. Is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, because yes, the shock I I received when seeing that Harry had the mirror and that it wasn't questioned by the characters it wasn't kind of explained stunned at all. me and well, he he knows what it's about. Uh-huh. And But what about the viewer? So it's it's jarring. Well, the viewer if they've read the books, they know what it's about, and if the viewer who hasn't read the books, they don't really I don't know why they'd care. So he just pulls out the mirror and he sees a, a flash of an eye in the movie? Yes. So the, but, the oh, assumption no. is why it's Wait. significant. Wait. Uh, what's what's the... significant with the mirror? Okay, what's significant with the mirror is that he thinks it's Dumbledore in it and that that ties into the theme that the movie does talk about, which is same as the book, which is who Dumbledore really was. Does he find a piece of the mirror like in the woods? No. Okay. He has it in his trunk or in, in Hermione's and, purse all bag. All right. All right. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm saying no. So I'm saying in in order to combat this, uh, you know, uh, ignorance that, that, that movie Harry had, they've actually employed this new technique. And this isn't going to be the end-all, be-all to solve everything. Because I think, you know, I'll, I'll elaborate on that later. But, you know, for the moment, I think that, you know, some things are going to be uh, expressed or take, you know, be okay. Like I was, I was okay with it because the way movie seven Harry acted made it really seem like, uh, a non-issue. And I feel horrible saying that because I'll be the first person to critique line by line the the third movie about where it was unfaithful. Could, and so this editorial is right up my alley. Could somebody make the argument then that, that David Yates is making the assumption that the person going to see Deathly Hallows Part 1 knows what Sirius's mirror is. No, it's not... Because how can you um, bring that into play without fully explaining what it is? See, I, I think this is one of the things... Well, let's try to keep the discussion on that. Okay. Because yeah, I think yeah. it's one of the things that needs to be discussed once we actually see the film. Yeah, but the short answer is it's a non-issue because Harry knows what it is. If Harry knows what it is that he's looking at, there's no reason for you to need to know what it is. Right. Well, okay, l- let's keep going down this list, but Andrew, I just wanted to bring up yeah. one point um, before we go on, and because it was a focal point of uh, what she was discussing, and that was that really Half-Blood Prince as a whole, it- its main plot took a backseat, as she says, it was backburnered for teenage romance. And so mm-hmm. everything from, you know, what and where the Horcruxes were how they can be found and destroyed, what the identity of the Half-Blood Prince was, it was all overshadowed by who was kissing who. And she felt really strongly, and this, this is something that comes up a number of times throughout the course of her editorial, and I think she's right. I mean, I always said with Half-Blood Prince that they, they paid very little attention to Snape and really did nothing to develop his character other than him shouting that he was the half-blood prince at the end of the film, which we'll get to a little bit later. But, you know, what are your, your guys' thoughts on that? Do you agree with that statement that it was, you know, a little bit too teeny, bopper? I thought I thought that was a big statement because that essentially 
throws out everything that's going on in the film to say that the 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 main point of the films was was the teenage romance. I think that was kind of pushing it. Though, I think the fact of the matter is, you know, that's what that's what a lot of people want to see. They want to see that romance. I mean, look at the Harry Potter fandom and how excited people get when uh you know, there's a new picture of Ron and Hermione sort of like looking at each other a funny way. Like the image spreads like wildfire around Tumblr and Twitter. <laughs> it just goes nuts. People love that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I think they have to, they have to fight a hard balance of catering to two groups of people. You have the people who are really want to see some passion or you want to see, uh, a loyal, Tourists. yeah, you want to see a loyal adaptation from the book. But then on the other hand, there's the general audience, which could be even a larger portion of the audience that, you know, read the books for fun, doesn't really analyze them, just, you know, breeze through them and likes to see that love stuff because sex sells. So I think that's something that they struggled with in Half-Blood Prince. And look, I mean, I don't think they would deny Lady Lupin's claim because think of how they marketed the Half-Blood Prince film. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that those those were his that was his three three thing, three itemized answer. Was that David Heyman or David Yates who's one of the two, yeah. I think it was probably David Heyman. Yeah. It sounds like something David one Heyman of the Davids. would say. Uh, but Micah, in in answer to your question and, and you know, off the show a moment, uh the more we talk about what Lady Lupin was thinking, the less we actually have to talk about her editorial. I know this is an editorial discussion, but I think that Micah's question here is very relevant to everything Lady Lupin said. Okay, back into the show. Um, so, Micah, in, in direct, like, what I feel about your direct question there is that, you know, it, later on in her editorial, she also makes the comment that Dumbledore, uh, in movie six, for the first time, she agreed with and even liked Michael Gammon as Dumbledore. And that's when I knew that Lady Lupin and I were going to one day be married, um, because I feel the same way. But, <laughs> So for her, so for her, and I said as much when we first started seeing the sixth film. So, you know, even though she does say, make this claim that, you know, the, the romance was completely forefronted and everything else backburnered, like the coming of age Voldemort, you know, all of that that's important to the understanding of the series. She also feels that, you know, Dumbledore was the most important, like, was the best he's ever been. Michael Gammon as Dumbledore, and I feel the same way. So she does kind of, I, I'm not gonna, she doesn't contradict herself, but she feels as I do, and I, I feel like I can possibly express this, uh, that we see the film, and even though there was a lot of romance, there were also important gains made in the Dumbledore department. And for that reason, movie seven and movie eight are not, you know, completely, I haven't lost hope in them. All right. So, so getting back to this list here, you know, going down sort of the points, uh, that Andrew started earlier, uh, Book Harry knows that Dumbledore believes Voldemort was unable to obtain an object of Gryffindor's. Perhaps a reminder of the sword hanging in Dumbledore's office would have been helpful as well, since it will come into play uh, a pretty large part in uh, Deathly Hallows. Um, you know, and this points towards the mystery Horcrux being a Ravenclaw object. So, uh, you know, I think her point there is is just, again, sort of the lack of knowledge on Harry's part about what potentially the Horcruxes could be. Mm -hmm. And and I know, Eric, you know, it's helpful that you have seen the film because you can also sort of comment on, you know, the the Horcrux knowledge that Harry does have in this film or the lack thereof. Right. And yeah, I want to say read, read some more points and I'll eventually get to what I want to talk about later with this editorial. 
which is sort of how Movie 7 deals okay. with things, but we'll, uh, we'll talk about that so later. So continuing down the list, um, and these are straight from the editorial, Film Harry knows nothing whatsoever about who and what Fenrir Greyback is or why he's particularly threatening. He is introduced without explanation in the film, which is actually, we, we actually talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's hard to believe yeah. the filmmakers missed the golden opportunity they themselves created for clarity near the beginning of the film, given the proximity of Greyback and Lupin, one of his victims, uh, during the attack on the borough. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, and, that. and they, they, yeah. they added that whole attack on the borough scene because, oh, it was a pacer. It was a pacer. <laughs> and now, yeah, that would have been a great way to, uh, get some more information about Fenrir. And if you think about one of the promotional posters for part one, it's it's that big it's a big shot of him it's it's just Fenrir. I mean, one uh, of what ends up being the millions of promotional materials for this film, but it's true, and that's what I was suspect about the the Greyback poster. And as, you know as Lady Lupin points out, what? they did they they made that poster because he's scary. They want to appeal to people. Oh, who, yeah. who's that? Who's that monster? <laughs> well, yeah, but like two days after the movie comes out, who's going to be buying the Greyback bus shelter poster on eBay? Nobody. Because he has no significance to anybody. Like maybe there's one Greyback fan from the you know from the books, none from the movie because they haven't introduced him. Like Lady Lupin says, he's he's a non-entity, and she points out that they created that burrow scene with Lupin and Greyback at the same scene, and they didn't do anything with it. Right. So I think that's a very valid point. Next point, Book Harry not only knows that Tonks is in love with Lupin, but he knows that Lupin is worried and reluctant to go forward with the relationship because of his condition and the prejudice the prejudices against him. Yeah, as far as Lupin's characterization, that's why this is important, but otherwise I don't think it's important at all. Um, Lupin, how Lupin feels about Tonks or how Tonks feels about Lupin. Um, you know... They they, yeah. all, they both end up dead at the end of the film series. There's no reason for that. It was never really developed uh, as much in the uh, in the movies to begin with. Like if, if putting Haplin Prince aside, I mean, I think you started to get a feeling for it in Order of the Phoenix when she was first introduced, and they never really did anything more with her character. Next mm-hmm. point: comparing film Harry to book Harry. Film Harry knows nothing whatsoever about the character of the new minister, Scrimgeour. Um, she I, does go on in the article to say why that's significant, but it's not here in our notes. Well, I think I was just going to say that I think, Eric, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine we're going to get a lot of explanation when he comes and gives the items from Dumbledore's will. Well, explanation as far as, hello, I Would we Would we learn minister. that he's kind of an oddball? Oh. I mean, we'll... Uh, so we just learned that he's a new minister, is that all? Well, no, I'm, I'm asking, is that what you think he's going to, like, sit down and explain who well, he is? Well, my theory is that to explain this, I would imagine a good opportunity to explain the character of the minister more was to have him show up and, and sort of uh, to, and personify the descriptions of the book. Yeah, the descriptions of the book are very clearly person- you know, acted out by the moments we have, which... You know, it's another scene that's leaked, so you can actually just find it online. Oh, is it? Um, I haven't seen that. Between the minister and Harry. So, um, you know, where he reads Dumbledore's will. That's the only scene with the minister other than the uh, beginning of the film, which is also leaked online, where he's addressing the wizarding public. Bill Nye is a great character, plays a great character in this movie, um, and, you know, I think it does the book justice, but what is it that Lady Lupin is saying is significant here as far as, you know, Harry not knowing who the new minister is. And I think 
isn't it that the ministry and their stand on Voldemort is significant because eventually the you know the ministry has to be infiltrated. But all of that, in my opinion, is taken care of when they actually have to infiltrate the ministry. So I don't really okay. know what else to say. Well, then, speaking of the ministry, Film Harry has no idea that Dolores Umbridge is still employed by the ministry, despite her terrible record at Hogwarts in film and book five. Now, I know, I know, we all know that Umbridge does make a return uh, in part one, but I wonder why she feels that this is a problem. Well, in isn't there in book six, there was a line where Harry does a double take and he says, what, she's still with the ministry? Yeah. And that's in book six, isn't it? Dumbledore's funeral. Oh, yeah. And that's from... Because she, she's there. Right. And that was omitted from... Yeah, okay. All right. I'm on board here. So that's significant. I, I think some of the other points that are coming up, though, are, are a little bit more central to, to the plot. Like, for example, the film Harry has never met Mondungus Fletcher... Incidentally, neither have viewers, and we've been told nothing of his character or history, nor the fact that he was stealing objects that someone like Aberforth bought from him. Uh, He and every plot point he touches, including the location of the locket and the two-way mirror, are non-existent at this point. You guys remember a few MuggleCasts back, we we did like a who are we most stoked to see in the film, or what actor are we most proud of, and you know, me having seen the film, I I said uh, Mundungus Fletcher, Andy, what's his name? Yeah, well, that's how I feel. Um, he was really good in the movie, and I don't think that, uh, you know, as as much as I would have liked him to have been a character, you know, because he does that, he's so enjoyable to watch in the other films. Um, I I think it's okay that they just pushed him in the yeah, end. Yeah, but I I think the point is that he has no idea that Mondungus was ransacking Grimold Place when they were cleaning it out in movie five because. They never cleaned it out in movie five. Right. You know, and so her point is that who is this random character that's going to be introduced about a locket that we never even knew about in the first place? You know, and it all ties into the, to the, some of the other points that are here, like Harry having no idea he owns Creature or Grimold Place. Yeah. You know, Dumbledore never gave him that information yeah. at the yeah. beginning of Half Blood. That's Prince. fairly significant. There's, these are a lot of plot points that are absent from, you know, the, the film's preceding the one that's coming out on November the 19th. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's just, to, it's important to keep in mind, as we have also discussed on numerous occasions, it is impossible to take everything from the books and put them in the films. As as Lady Lupin points out, too, they'd have to be much longer. So, um, Next point, Film Harry does not know that he has his mother's protection at pr- for Privet Drive and will until his 17th birthday. Even if this is stated in an earlier film, it certainly would have benefited by a reminder somewhere in Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, everything from... Yeah, I... And also... Go on. No, I, I was just going to say, I, I agree, it would have benefited, because not everyone sees these films. Every film. Yeah, and it down it downplays the character of Dumbledore, too. Uh, you know, knowing what Dumbledore had to do to protect Harry um, would, would have been important information. Um, you know, both the characters of Dumbledore and Snape are extremely downplayed in the films, and Lady Lupin is, that's, that's one of her central points, especially Snape later on in the editorial. Next point. As compared to Book Harry, Film Harry has very little information on the evolution of how Tom Riddle became Voldemort and the psyche of the Dark Lord, with which Harry will have to contend in Deathly Hollows, since Voldemort's psyche is largely responsible for his downfall and Harry's victory 
that is an unfortunate omission. Okay. I want to spend the most time talking about this. Not me, but you guys. I want to know what okay. you think about this specific point. I, I agree with the point um, on the whole. I, I, I do. I think that, you know, a lot was omitted from Half-Blood Prince, a lot of flashback scenes in particular. And, uh, you know, I think David Heyman and David Yates really tried to drive home the one uh, at the orphanage. But I think, you know, uh, sort of the memories that Dumbledore was able to obtain really about um, the Gaunts and, uh, you know, giving a, a look back into, you know, how Voldemort came to be who he was mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, sort of it, just the way his mind worked, you know, his ability to charm people. You, know, you saw it a little bit with Slughorn, but also with um, uh, making Hufflepuff's Cup uh, in with Hepzibah Smith into the, yeah. into the Horcrux as well. I think that was a major omission from the films. And, you know, again, the question arises, how is he going to know Hufflepuff's Cup? And how is he going to know it's in Gringotts, in Bellatrix Strange's ball? You know, (laughs) all that stuff has been, you know, uh, unfortunately left out prior to this. And I think, you know, she brings up a great point because Harry is able to match Voldemort's wit, you know, like when he calls him Tom at the end. Um, You know, it's just... I, there's so much here that that just breaks my heart. Yeah, doesn't it? And it's just so sad. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I, I mean that's kind of my main my main point. You know, I think there was a, a very large missed opportunity in Half Blood Prince because we did get some backstories. Uh, you know, and we and Slug we could have heard more from Slughorn or Dumbledore. Or just more from the backstories. Uh, though I did love... About Voldemort? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get a better picture of how Tom Riddle became Voldemort. Uh, but I did love the Tom Riddle flashbacks in the film. Yeah. Well, I mean, the film could have benefited from the Gaunts and Hepzibah Smith. And especially for the reasons that Lady Lupin says in this editorial regarding Riddle's ability to charm people. That's extremely important in book in, in, in movie 7 or movie 8. But... You know, her point here about Voldemort's psyche, like Harry not understanding Voldemort's psyche and how he came to rise to power, um, affecting him being an issue for the seventh or eighth film, I don't really feel that that is that, you know, that big of a deal, not understanding Voldemort's personality. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I mean, ultimately, though, it's just there's so much in that one point about how the producers left out the flashbacks because it, it it really it takes away from the fact that movie six should have been about Voldemort and how he came to be and instead it was about you know teenage romance yeah. which is what her point was early on mm-hmm. and that all takes a back story or a back seat sorry to the story of, of teenage romance well, you know so it, it's yeah that's the unfortunate side of of, of how they ended up producing movie six. But, and there's there's other major plots, too, that were left out from movie well, six, like Snape. Yeah. Well, do you feel like book six... Well. Do you feel like book six ever reached a conclusion as far as how Voldemort became a dictator? Because Dumbledore makes some really broad... quote. Like, there are some broad quotations, like, Voldemort created his own enemies just as dictators everywhere do, and he's, he's, like, exclamatory about it. But I don't feel like it was ever answered whether Voldemort is Voldemort because he was born that way, or Voldemort was Voldemort because he was made that way. 
I think the case is made for uh, him being born that way, but it just seems like, and, and you know, and come come book seven, I feel like Voldemort's psyche is extremely inconsistent with the buildup from the first six books. Uh, he's he's shown very careless, and he's shown forgetful, and he makes many many mistakes in book seven that. I don't think anybody as terrifying as the Voldemort that Joe has written up in book six would have made. And it's so, it's interesting because I feel that there's inconsistency there. And, you know, Lady Lupin feels that it's important somehow that the psyche of, of Voldemort is important to know. I don't feel like the book ever reaches a conclusion why Tom Riddle became Voldemort. And therefore, I don't necessarily feel that it's, you know, too upsetting that they left it out of the film. Well... I just think there there are major plot points that are missing from Half Blood Prince that that needed to be there, okay. you know, especially from a Horcrux standpoint. So go on. I think we agree on that. Yeah. So this kind of touches a little bit on the last point that we were discussing: that film Harry doesn't know how and where Voldemort obtain objects of significance to make into Horcruxes, or anything about Tom Riddle's ability to charm others into giving him what he wanted. This will handicap Harry's sleuthing ability when encountering the Grey Lady whom film Harry also never heard of. That may be less of an issue since book Harry didn't pay any attention to the Ravenclaw ghost either. However, it would be nice if viewers at least understood that each Hogwarts house has a ghost. Have we ever even seen the bloody parent? <laughs> that's, that's a good point because, you know, she, she, she pulls out all the stops. I mean, we don't even know, movie viewers won't even know that each house has a ghost. I don't know that it's significant, but I think, I think you know, she has a sound point here. Especially about Harry's sleuthing ability, you know, when trying to find the Horcruxes. So, what, what do you guys think? Uh, well, wasn't there wasn't there a brief mention? This isn't an excuse, but wasn't there a very brief mention of the Bloody Baron in like Sorcerer's Stone? Like, oh, it's the Bloody Baron. Well, that was when he was sweeping over the yeah. uh, the students. It was it was during the welcoming feast, right? Yeah. Um, he was sweeping down and kind of... Well, Eric, wasn't it you that, that saw a, a prop from him yeah. at one of the exhibitions? Yeah, it's his costume. They have it at the Harry Potter of the Exhibition, and it's it's probably my favorite prop from the exhibition, maybe because of how little it's shown in the film, but just the attention to detail. It, it's basically the best example uh, of the HP exhibition when it was in Chicago that shows the detail that goes into the film's you know, which gets traded off against how much screen time any of those props are actually, you know, getting. Um, so, yeah, the only thing I remember about well, the, I, I, the Bloody Baron or the Grey Lady is, you know, the brief bit during the welcoming feast. Yeah, I mean, it just ties into our earlier point, though, about Harry not being knowledgeable about uh, the fact that Voldemort would have wanted to take and make Horcruxes from each of the founders. Yeah, I think maybe that's what she was getting to, too, that... One of the revelations of book six is that Tom felt as strongly about Hogwarts as Harry does. And I, and, and, you know, it's for that reason that he seeks out the magical objects to, you know, to create Horcruxes out of it. It's for that reason. I think that about his psyche is extremely important. Yeah. And, and kind of following that point, film Harry doesn't know that his potions book, uh, is hidden under a beat up old tiara. Yeah. And the recollection of the tiara is an important moment for Book Harry in Deathly Hollows, and will eventually lead to him going to the Room of Requirement. Um, so you know that ties into the whole diadem Horcrux. So yeah, uh, you know it's it's it is it's kind of like nitpicking now a little bit here, 
but you know i think it speaks to the larger the larger um hole in the plot mm-hmm. that that's been created here yeah he, here's where i'll say that the movie split may benefit a lot of these issues quite a lot because in the book in book 7 sorry um you know harry gets to hogwarts pretty late in the game i mean he really he's gone from hogwarts for most of the book up until the final battle and it's when he gets to hogwarts that he not only uh discovers the diadem i mean that's the fr- that's really the first time we hear about the diadem is once he's at hogwarts you know 5 eighths of the way into the book and that's also where he finds you know the um i'm sorry that's also where a lot of the exposition about how, you know about the the remaining horcruxes is discovered you know harry not only finds out about the diadem while he's at hogwarts for the very first time he also finds out about Fiendfire destroying the you know it all just it happens so sudden in rapid succession in the book even so that splitting the film they'll be able to dwell on that a lot more i feel like it'll be a lot less forced or rushed as it is in the book since they have a whole second movie to devote largely to harry being at hogwarts like you know i i feel like the the book didn't get to do that because it had to show them in the woods for you know with with all that other with the important you know Dumbledore plot that was running. So because movie one can focus on a well, large part of that, you know, movie eight can focus a lot more on the the actual Horcrux quest. Now, um, just another couple of quick points here. Film Harry doesn't know why Tom Riddle was orphaned. Um, you know, that kind of ties into uh, the backstory that we were talking about that was left out of Half-Blood Prince. A lot of uh, lookbacks at the Gaunts uh, and... and you know, Harry getting a better understanding of the fact that he's actually just very similar to Tom Riddle. To, to, to Tom Riddle. Yeah. And I, I do think that's an important recollection because there is that moment with Dumbledore where he realizes that Tom Riddle chose to go down one path, whereas Harry chose to go down another. And, you know, sort of that those two diverging paths. And, you know, I think it is important that, you know, Harry has that recollection or that recognition um, you know, of the difference between the two of them. I, I agree. That is, that's sort of the one definitive where I, you know, I feel like Tom or Harry should know more about Voldemort and Voldemort should be a more fleshed out character. But in the films, he really just has to be a villain and only has to function as a villain. Fortunately, they've got a good actor playing him in the films, but Unless they are going to do something with that actor, he may as well not be there in 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 that sense, if you get what I'm saying. Like, they really should do more with Voldemort's character. And because he's a villain, you know, somebody's got to want him to make the most compelling villains list that comes out. But if not, then he just looks really cool. In the end, Harry defeats him with Expelliarmus. So really, what... What, what what was Joe ever saying anyway? What what was what was <laughs> Joe ever saying about Voldemort if he can be defeated with Expelliarmus? Another which point, isn't that's even a true. defensive spell. Another point. Well, we're going to get emails about that. I mean, obviously the Horcruxes were gone, so he he couldn't have <laughs> just killed him with Expelliarmus and Horcrux with the Horcruxes still intact. But anyway, another point. Film Harry has no connection to or knowledge of Bill Weasley and hasn't seen or spoken to Floor since the end of year four. And yet, in Deathly Hollows, 
Their wedding is the jump-off point of the trio's hunt for horcruxes, and their home plays a major role as a sanctuary. Um, I disagree that this is too big of a deal, because, um, you know, the, one of the Weasley members could just be like, okay, hey, uh, plan is to go to Bill's, because uh, nobody nobody knows them, <laughs> including the viewers, so or you, so... <laughs> I mean, that would actually make more sense that Harry doesn't know Bill to go there because nobody would really expect yeah. him to go there. So yeah, their reduced role in the film is 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 I, I think I think appropriate because I mean you know we Harry doesn't speak to Floor since movie four anyway until she shows up at the the burrow in movie in book seven. So it, it, you know they're essentially they're reintroduced. Both characters are reintroduced in book seven, and so it's very it's very easy for that to translate to to movie seven, even though. We haven't seen Bill before. Um, he looks just well, like the Weasleys. I, I will say this, though. I will say this, though. It, it's, it goes back to a lot of the points that were brought up earlier. For example, Fenrir Greyback, um, you know, and the fact that he attacks Bill Weasley. And, you know, that's the whole reason Flora really ends up falling for him and they end up getting married in movie seven or book seven. And, you know, they, they, another thing is they completely leave out the, uh, the fact that Fenrir Greyback is a werewolf. I mean, for all you know, he's just an ugly-looking villain. <laughs> uh, well, and, uh, you know, that, that's the only thing I would say yeah. with respect to that. Well, I'm going to play devil, devil's advocate here. Um, you know, wouldn't... Okay, things like knowing about Bill Weasley, obviously, you know, we see we see him in Chamber of Secrets, the book. And, you know, he sits down at dinner, and he's really cool. Harry gets the impression that he's a really cool guy. And things like that are what make the book special. So would you really want a film to have introduced Bill Weasley way back in, in, in book four, or mo- sorry, movie four? And, you know, or do you want to be able to read the books and have this whole sense of a greater world and whole sense of a family that the films really would have had to strain themselves to include? Um, because if the, if a film is about... No, that's a fair point. Yeah. It's a fair point. But, I mean, part of the reason why it wasn't included previously was because they cut out the whole fight scene at the end of Half-Blood Prince. It's very true. So, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time here talking about Voldemort and the Horcruxes, but, um, you know, Lady Lupin also touches on Snape, and she mentions that film Harry does not know that it was Snape who betrayed the prophecy to Voldemort. The lack of that knowledge is unfortunate in that the realization escalates book Harry's hatred of Snape and ultimately becomes a vehicle for his acceptance of his former enemy teacher. Um, yeah, you know, I and, mean, and I think one sh- of the most upsetting moments for me in Half-Blood Prince was at the end, where there's just that quick moment where uh, Snape that admits that he is the Half-Blood Prince. Uh, Harry doesn't call him a coward. I mean, that was something a lot of fans were looking forward to, and, and that just that basically just wraps everything up about this point in a bow. That that there there is no... Harry and Snape correlation, had, yeah, and it's going to be a shame when Snape dies in part two, and I hope we feel the emotion that we should. Yeah, they practically have to cast Lily for the first time just to show that that Snape had been in love with her the whole time. I mean, I'm glad that they kept the same actress from movie one to portray Lily in all of the photographs they've shown of her since, but it, it almost seems ridiculous that and and that it's likely to be cut even though it's very important at this point, because Snape alone has suffered such reduced screen time compared with how prominent he is in the books. I mean, the Half-Blood Prince is Snape, and we don't even, I don't even, that's, you know, that's easily, easily, easy to miss if by watching the sixth film. 
Yeah, and, you know, she brings up some points about the Harry-Snape relationship and the fact that it was really obliterated in the sixth film. You know, the train is one example. Uh, obviously, Luna finds him in the movie, whereas it's Tonks in the uh, in the book, and Tonks is the one that brings him up uh, to Snape uh, in the start of uh, the term. There's, there's no defense against the dark arts lessons, uh, where obviously Snape has taken over that post, you know, so uh, something that Harry had come to really enjoy learning about is now taught by the person he loathes the most, and um, there was no detentions, um, you know, post sectum sempra, as she says, you know, after Harry curses Draco, mm. and you know he's sentenced to detention with Snape. So it it just goes to show you that, you know, where they had the opportunity to really develop this hatred between the two and then have it come full circle. In part two, they, they missed the boat on that. And, you know, they made it seem more like Snape was just doing what was being asked of him by Dumbledore, which really isn't supposed to be revealed, you know, until the until the final film. That's true. And um, so then the other thing is she does run through really quick the, uh, you know, what I think is a very important point. Be, you know, several instances in which all of the films of the Harry Potter uh, series have failed to show Harry as an emerging leader. Um, you know, she mentions Quidditch tryouts, which we did see some of in the film. Um, you know, the cave scene. But as she points out, but as Lady Lupin points out in an article, at the beginning of the lesson, it takes Ginny to quiet down the group of people. Harry can't even do it. Uh, which is, which is <laughs> maybe strange. they're, yeah, maybe they're sensible, uh, the, the filmmakers. They know that, uh, Harry. Well, that was her point, yeah. though. That was her point, is that it should have right. been Harry, not Ginny. You know, making Ginny do it makes Harry look, you know... Yeah, I mean, weak. he's about yeah. to uh, get the entire school fighting for him in, the, in two films later. I mean, he came and quiet down a little Quidditch team. It seems, seems true. Yeah. yeah. The cave, they, did, they showed more of... Uh, I think, what was her point, that when they're going into the cave... Uh, or no, the beginning of the movie, or it's actually it's in the book, too, where they apparate... Uh, Harry says that, uh, you know, he feels safe because he's with Dumbledore, um, you know, and, and then in the cave, it's Dumbledore who says that he feels safe because he's with Harry. And, you know, they've really the, the way that they did the cave scene where it just kind of ended with them up in that middle island and, and not showing Harry taking Dumbledore out she felt was, you know, a mistake on that. There's a short change because in the beginning when Harry goes with Dumbledore to see Slughorn, Harry makes the comment, I'm okay because I'm with you. And it plays off each other, which I never realized until I read this article like that, that that was like a setup and payoff. I loved that. Okay. And a couple other points related to that. Harry and Ginny, the kiss, Harry kind of, he's not the one making the move there. It's Ginny. (laughs) And also not being immobilized atop the tower, uh, you know the whole the whole point in the book was Dumbledore immobilizes Harry because Harry really wants to intervene, but instead Dumbledore just says, "Oh, go downstairs, hide." And, uh, and Harry, Harry is immobilized. Runs. He scampers like fear. a little rat. Yeah, um, <laughs> like a little rat. That's a little harsh. Like the little mat. Well, I didn't mean rat. Like uh, I don't know, a little bunny. There is that better. <laughs> So to wrap up this discussion, we have a couple tweets. We asked you guys what you thought of the adaptations, and, uh, and especially in regards to Lady Lupin's article. Raja Reed wrote, I agree that WB left out critical info for Harry and Half-Blood Prince. I bet they'll use Hermione or the will to get Harry the info. Uh, of course. I mean, Hermione always knows everything. 
Alabama Mike 2814 wrote, I completely agree with that article. Those who only watch the movies will have to take several leaps of faith to keep up. Uh, that's a little unfair, though. I mean, we don't, we, you know, until we actually see the film, we don't know for sure. I, I imagine it's not going to be a, a a complete mess, <laughs> despite no. everything that's been discussed in the well, past forty five minutes. My hope is, my, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Plot holes abound, but don't worry, the movie will be peculiar, fine. <laughs> peculiar, peculiar, peculiar ways, right? I don't think they've given the prophecy, specifically its origins, any justice, and how it was Snape who informed Voldemort. The Snape informing Voldemort, personally in the book, it feel felt like that wasn't always meant to be. You know, it was kind of a last-minute extra reason to hate Snape. But what does she mean that the prophecy wasn't given any – or peculiar ways? What do they mean that the, the prophecy wasn't given any justice? Because also, you know, regarding Book 7, I don't think the prophecy specifically even matters by the end of it all. No, it doesn't. But there wasn't – I – I agree there wasn't too much of an explanation with the prophecy. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that... Uh, was it ever revealed, too, that it was Trelawney that made the prophecy in the movies? I'm not sure that they ever figured out the, in, the initials the original. On, the, uh, on the prophecy. No, because Harry doesn't have that... Yeah, he doesn't have that follow-up meeting with Dumbledore. Dumbledore just comes to his, his bedroom and talks about curtains instead. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're right in that aspect. KB1073 wrote, I love the article and agree 100%. I think that fans who haven't read the books are going to be a little lost. Um, but again, that's, you know, to be determined. And finally, Gabriella Maria94 writes, If they do remake the series, maybe they'll make sure not to leave out scenes where <laughs> Harry finds something out. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, don't that's a great way up. to end the uh, discussion. It is. <laughs> And uh, now let's get into some muggle mail before we wrap up the show today. This one's from Lara from Manchester. She says, sorry if this has been sent more than once. I've been having internet problems. Oh, I guess I was supposed to read over that. I was just listening to your new show when you discussed why the Bobaton students sat at the Ravenclaw table. An idea came to mind straight away. Yes, it balances out so that there is a champion at each table, but there are also comparisons between Fleur and Rowena Ravenclaw. Flora is obviously good-looking, considering the attention she gets from boys, especially from Ron. Rowena is described as fair, which again indicates attractiveness. A lot of other Ravenclaws are also seen as good-looking. Cho Chang, Roger Davies, Padma Patil. So possibly this is a trait for members of the house. And I think that Xenophilius Lovegood's bust of Rowena is described as beautiful but austere-looking. Deathly Hell is page 30, set 327 of the UK edition. This severe look could link to Fleur's Vila blood... Uh, sorry. This severe look could link to Fleur's Vila blood in her, especially when they are angry and become harpy-like. Harpies also have bird features. Another link. Just a thought. Love the show, Laura. Hmm. Interesting. And there are plenty of connections between uh, Durmstrang and the Dark Arts, especially with Grindelwald. So, I feel like that... And Slytherin, you know. So... I feel like that's important. Next email comes from Shway, 18 of Utah. Hey, in Goblet of Fire, Harry is forced to compete in the Triwizard Tournament because it is a binding magical contract. I think that if he had refused to compete, it would have been like breaking an unbreakable vow and he would have died. What do you think? This is, of course, in response to last last episode's chapter by chapter where um, we were wondering, mm. you know, 
Yeah. Why he was forced. Yeah, we talked about this, where it was like, we weren't sure to what point Harry actually agreed to this magic, like a magical contract, especially an unbreakable vow, you've got to shake hands on it, for crying out loud, and Harry had nothing to do with his name being submitted into the goblet, so he right, shouldn't so, have been able, right. you know, I mean, if he physically be. didn't put his name in, there's or write his name down, then you would think that it wouldn't magically bind him to have to compete. You know, unless like Mad Eye slash Barty Crouch yeah, but- took a piece of his report or something where Harry Potter was written at the top and you know submitted <laughs> yeah, it to the goblet. Yeah, that would be a little. Yeah, would be. Yeah, I get that. No, but no, but still, there should have been like a special piece of paper to put in the goblet too. I think, uh, I think future uh, competitions will be more <laughs> absolutely, secure. absolutely. But wasn't it? Wasn't it that Mad Eye? Slash Barty Crouch Jr. was able to trick the goblet because he entered Harry under a fourth school. Oh, yes, I think you're right. Yeah, what fourth school? But like, why? But but yeah, we talked. But we sort of talked about this. I'm. I mean, you know, why doesn't the goblet only know there's three? Doesn't shouldn't the goblet know what the three schools are? And I, especially I, if they're making decisions about it's a PC, not a Mac. <laughs> especially if they're making decisions about a. a, a a champion's character uh, based off their name. You know, we heard from the Goblet of Fire last week and he talked, he told us about, you know, viewing Facebook profiles and going by the eyes. Oh, yeah. and, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's very... It's only Goblet of so Fire 1.0. It needs to be upgraded. <laughs> Micah, could you read the next email, please? Sure. The next email comes from Madeline, 13, of Virginia. And she says, Hi, Mugglecasters. I was listening to episode 212 where you played audio clips of the Deathly Hallows soundtrack, and as I listened, I noticed the score sounded quite weak, to be frank. I realized this is a new composer, and of course he produces different songs than John Williams and Nicholas Hooper. However, the score didn't come across as if it was from a Harry Potter movie, more like a one-off film, not the first part of the final movie of an important, highly loved series. Dobby's death didn't even make me cry, which is somewhat of a disappointment. In Hooper's and Williams' scores... They had so many instruments playing at once in an organized chaos sort of way where I was hard to detect every single instrument, whereas the new score sounded quite dull and not supported. I understand that there is a lot of pressure put on new makers of anything Harry Potter because us fans are very picky and hardly ever fully pleased, although I would have liked to see, or rather hear, Nicholas Hooper back for the last film. Thanks for reading my lengthy complaint. And thank you for giving me a new podcast to listen to every two weeks. Well, thanks this for being is... a new listener, Madeline. <laughs> yeah. Now Eric proceeds is... to uh, criticize her. Yeah. Go ahead. This is so harsh. This is ridiculously harsh. I, I can't even I can't even begin <laughs> Okay, okay. Well she you have says... to see it in context. Is that what you're gonna say basically? You have to well, see not, it no, 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 in the, with the film. Um Okay, yes. And I made the point that last you know, in the earlier films when John Williams did compose the music had to be what I called it last week, its own character, because the acting, it was not being supported by the acting. Movie 7 or 8, there's such strong acting coming from the trio that you actually almost don't want to hear this loud, br- you know, brassy, you know, extreme music playing during these scenes because what's going on is far more interesting uh, than the music. But I don't know how she can right. make the claim that this this sounds like it's not the music of an important and highly loved series. I, I don't even get that. That's that's horrible. 
What kind of music doesn't sound like it's from a highly loved series? I, I thought that there were plenty of instruments. I thought that the, the, that the 30 second clips, which again, she says she listened to the score, it's only 30 second clips. Dobby's death didn't make you cry. That's because of 90 second clip, you only heard 30 seconds and you haven't seen Dobby's death on screen. So I, I don't know. I, I and this concludes Eric's okay, spiel. Yeah. Stop, I was already stop concluding rip, it. Stop ripping on a thirteen-year-old, okay? So I <laughs> just before we get letters. I just yeah. Don't forget, we need votes for the podcast awards. So that's it for emails. Before we wrap up the show, we want to give you guys a couple reminders about everything going on in the MuggleCast, MuggleNet, Harry Potter world. First of all, a quick little fan art plug. We have a great section on MuggleNet, the MuggleNet fan art area, where every week there's a new piece of art being featured created by a Harry Potter fan. And we wanted to feature uh, a a cool piece of fan art, two actually. I just remembered another great one. First of all, uh, visit MuggleCast.com, and there you'll see a, a pumpkin carved of the trio. Uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione. It's really well done. It's pretty amazing. And that was done by Alexandra. And uh, she talked with Noah, who runs the Muggle in the Fan Art section. And uh, we are going to feature it. So, Alexandra, thanks so much for sending that in. And also, MuggleCast listener Anne, she carved a MuggleCast pumpkin. Have you guys seen this? No. Go to Facebook.com slash MuggleCast, and you'll see our our album art carved into a pumpkin. It's really well done. I've had it sitting on my desktop because I love looking at it. It's uh, it's just really well done. So thanks, Anne, so much for doing that for us. And it's right now our our MuggleCast profile picture on Facebook. That's awesome. Hey, I don't like MuggleCast, apparently, so I'm fixing that now. Also, we want to remind everyone about the podcast awards. Go to MuggleCast.com, and you'll see how you can nominate us. It It's really quick, really easy. And once we're nominated, once we get enough nominations, we'll be you guys will be able to vote for us. And uh, this will all be taking place over the next couple months. So thank you so much for your support in nominating us. Again, just go to MuggleCast.com to get all the information. Speaking of MuggleCast.com, you can find everything you need to get in touch with us, to like us on Facebook, to follow us on Twitter, to subscribe and review us, and much, much more. If you do want to email us, just click on contact at the top, and there you'll see a feedback form. And you also see our mailing address if you would like to mail us anything to our P.O. box. And we do appreciate that. One final piece of news, our next episode, which will be 214, that'll be our big part one review show. So make sure to tune in. We plan on releasing it November 20th at the latest. We're going to record the day the film is actually released. Uh, but of course it takes a little time to edit it so we plan to have it out November 20th at the latest you'll get all our thoughts on it every little scene we'll pick apart everything we'll get plenty of uh, your emails and it'll be a fun show thanks everyone for listening I'm Andrew Sims I'm Eric Skull and I'm Micah Tannenbaum we'll see you next time our big part one review show 214 bye 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 adios enjoy the plot holes <laughs>